Over two years ago, we set up the Estates Theology Project to bring together estates clergy and theologians to ask the question, what is the good news from the estates? The project has been about discerning the life of the gospel in estates parishes, offering support to dioceses and to the wider church, and to find ways of reviving the life of the church on those estates from which we're currently absent. But what does this good news look like? And what's the role of the church in estates parishes? Hopefully, you've heard our recent programmes discussing three estate parishes, Withenshaw, Twiddle and Rubery, and the work being done in those contexts. My name is Jamie Hawkey. I'm the Canon Theologian at Westminster Abbey, and have been involved with this project both conceptually and as one of the theologians since its inception. So here around the table we have the Reverend Lynn Cullins, Rector of Stockport and Brinnington, Chair of the National Estates Churches Network and a member of the Archbishop's Commission for Housing, Church and Community. Hi Lynn. Hello Jamie, hi. We have Bishop Philip North, Bishop of Burnley, who also heads up the National Estates Evangelism Task Group. Great to have you here, Father. Hello. The Reverend Claire Turner is Vicar of St Chad's Rubri on the edge of Birmingham. Thanks, Claire, for coming down. Hello, hi. The Reverend Anne Richardson was until recently Rector of Holy Trinity Twiddle in Kent and is now Area Dean of Aston and Sutton Coldfield in Birmingham. Hi, Anne. Hello. Dr Justin Stratis, who worked alongside Anne in Twiddle on the project and is tutor in doctrine at Trinity College Bristol, is also here. Justin, thanks for being here. Hey, man. The Reverend Dr Al Barrett is the Rector of Hodge Hill. He lives and works on the Furs and Bromford Estate in East Birmingham and is coordinator of the Estates Theology Project. Hi, Al. Hi. So to kick things off, Bishop Philip North, how did the project come about? I think we've been becoming increasingly aware that over the last 30 years we've seen the slow withdrawal of church life from our urban estates, a slow abandonment of the poor, and a church that abandons the poor is abandoning God. Jesus locates his ministry on the edges, in the margins, in the places where no one else wanted to go. And from there he started a kingdom movement that does transform the whole meaning of what it is to be human. And yet we seem to have a renewal strategy in the Church of England, which is about doing the opposite, pulling away from the margins, focusing resource in the fashionable areas and amongst the wealthy. And it doesn't seem to me that we're going to change a country with the good news of Jesus Christ working in that way. So it's essential that we renew church life amongst our poor areas and on our outer estates. And actually, renewal means refreshed and renewed theology. This project has been going since 2017, with the group meeting a couple of times a year and working hard in pairs in between those meetings. Al, I wonder if you would tell us a bit more about the genesis of this project. Sure. So the original idea was let's pair up academic theologians and locally rooted practitioners in a variety of estates across the country, across church traditions. And estates come in many different shapes and sizes as well. So actually, it's quite a diverse selection of of different kinds of estate as well. And what those pairs have done is some careful, attentive listening to local voices, both within the church and within the wider community on those estates, seeking to hear what brings people life, what brings people grief, and seeking to discern what the gospel, what the good news is in these places. And what we've done is, as you said, uh, those pairs have met together in their contexts, and then we've gathered together once or twice a year for the last couple of years to, to hear the stories, to hear the voices coming back to us, and to try and discern some themes that have emerged across the work. 
Bishop Philip spoke about how Jesus located his ministry on the edges. I wonder, Lynn, if you could tell us a bit about where you heard good news in the previous podcasts. I think there were a couple of places that stood out for me, to be honest. I was struck in the Twiddle podcast with Justin's point around the poor holding the prayers of the rest of us, that in some way people on the margins intercede for the rest of the body of Christ and for the church. And I thought that was hugely powerful, actually. So that was the thing that struck me first and foremost. That sense of the poor having something very particularly theologically rich to offer is a strand which has run through a lot of our conversations. Al, how have you encountered that? It's been quite a privilege to hear the feedback from all of the six contexts that uh, we've been working with in this project and particularly hear some of the stories and, and people speaking in their own words on the podcast. And I think I've been struck like Lynn, by that sense that there's been profound and resilient faith at work in those places, in those estates, but also the sense of challenge that's come with that. And again, to reference the Twiddle Declaration, that the wider church needs the gifts that our estates have, that our estate churches have, and that actually what this is, amongst other things, is a wake-up call to the wider church to hear the voices of those on estates, but also to begin to see differently, to see treasure that's not normally valued as treasure by the wider church. I think I was struck by one or two comments in the Withenshaw podcast about treasuring different things to what's normally treasured. Actually, there are voices from our estates saying, actually, no, this is important to us. And if this is important, then there may be the stuff that's normally the centre of attention in our conversations as church, maybe that's a bit more peripheral. I think that's a critical point because it shows that half the project is really honest listening. Now, we all talk about listening to other groups and so on, but we don't actually often do that listening. We listen having already decided what we're going to hear. And I think what we've seen in, in across these podcasts is genuine listening, even sometimes when what you hear may not be all that comfortable or may not be what you want to hear. And that, for me, sets down a real example in approach to mission and ministry that I hope others can pick up in all sorts of different contexts. Not only that, I think one of the things that has been most clear to me is the effect of that listening. The people of Twiddle are more confident disciples. They are, they're astonished by the voice that they have and the voice that they've been given. And it's done extraordinary things in that community, this project, just because they were listened to and honoured for their opinions and for the things that they hold dear. And actually the stuff that we're all going, wow, that's amazing, is ordinary in Twiddle. It's who they are. Claire. It happened on an individual level for us, the women who shared their stories. And I was humbled, actually, by the amount that people wanted to share and were willing to share. And when I sent the link back to say, you know, here is a finished piece, one of them said to me, wow, we sound amazing. <laughs> I said, you are amazing. But actually, nobody had ever affirmed or validated the story in that way. So simply by recording it, capturing it, naming it, it was quite powerful. We've called this project Finding the Treasure. 
a sense not that the treasure is something to be taken to a group of people or that the gospel is something to be, as it were, superimposed on a culture, but rather to see the gospel as being something which is already existing, not just right at the heart of communities, but somehow right at the heart of creation here, and that the gift which we're offered in Christ is the primary reality. In the different contexts we've worked, that's been unveiled, if you like, in in different ways. But I want to just come back to Twiddle for a moment, because, as you said a minute ago, Anne, this is, at least in part, about allowing people to hear their own voice, to find a voice, which is something which resonates far beyond their local context, to the sense that there are some serious challenges here for the wider church. Justin, I wonder if you might want to just, for a moment, highlight for us some of those challenges which have come out of the Twiddle Declaration. Yeah, as was just said, I mean, the idea of listening was really important and is what got this off the ground. I also found myself fighting the temptation to put words in their mouth quite a lot based on my sort of leftist progressive understanding of politics and sociology. I wanted them to get all upset about class struggle and disparities in education, and they just weren't going there. And it was really hard for me not to put that in because that's how I think some of these issues should be addressed. But I was impressed with their positivity, the way that they viewed themselves as a really great neighborhood, a great community, not certainly a community in need of charity, but a community that had something to say, that had a way of life that they wanted to commend, I think, to other kinds of communities. So listening to them was really important. So the third point in the Twiddle Declaration was one, I think, that struck a chord. So this... This one says that um, we affirm that God is with his people who live on housing estates and is already working powerfully amongst us. The kingdom of God has already come near in our midst, and this should be cause for celebration and gratitude amongst the whole people of God. This was something that came out quite strong as we chatted with the people there, that um, uh, they just regaled us with tales of amazing things God had done in their own personal lives and in the community and the way they related to one another. This ranges from conversions to expressions of care to the provision of Anne as their vicar. They were excited about what God was doing. And rather than have the church look at them and think, boy, we really need to help out these poor, deprived people, I think this created the conditions to put a spotlight on it and say, actually, you should celebrate with us. Don't look on us with pity, but celebrate with us what God has done. And then the flip side of that is that they really wanted to communicate that social deprivation doesn't mean God-forsakenness. Socioeconomic status is just one of many facets that make up human existence. So to take that one and say, well, that indicates a particular kind of need that other people don't have, that defines them was something they really wanted to resist. So we wanted to bring that out quite a bit. I'm very struck, Justin, by what you say there, particularly about social degradation not meaning God-forsakenness. That's a brilliant phrase, and I think we've all encountered that general theme across our work. We've tried not to flatten out distinctiveness in this series, but I wonder whether there are themes across the board that we might explore now? What are, what are some of the themes that have come across in lots of different contexts? So I think picking up on one of Justin's points, I was struck by one phrase, I think from Withenshaw, where someone said, we are not our poverty. Actually, some of this has been about 
just claiming voice but also claiming humanity and dignity and identity in a way that so often and a danger even in this podcast is that we're talking about people but actually one of the things that seems to cross the board in all three podcasts is, is actually what happens when people are given space to talk about themselves and talk about their own life rather than being labelled as poor, rather than being labelled as living in broken communities or ghetto estates or, or whatever. So that, that sense of being able to say, actually, life is richer than the labels seems to be one mm. recurring theme. I think there's also something about beauty in that when I first heard our podcast, it felt terribly raw and I was reminded of all the conversations we had about morals and ethics and whose voices and who are we listening to and how are we listening that we had before we made the recording. But there was also something really beautiful in the way those stories were shared and I heard that in the other podcasts as well. And I don't mean that that beauty negates the challenge and the horror of some of the situations that people encounter every day at all. They are real situations, they're difficult, they're painful, and there's a huge amount of brokenness around. But somehow in shining a light on those things and allowing people to speak, we see something beautiful. It's that, you know, you could use all of those analogies about the cracks through which the light gets in, all of that stuff. And hearing it for a second or third time, I started to hear some of those really beautiful things shine through. And I think clinging on to that, you know, noticing the treasure in that way has been something that's made me think twice about some of the work we're doing, some of the approaches we're taking to not sort of squash that, you know, to allow that to shine through, as I say, situations that are genuinely horrid. You were searching for a metaphor there, Claire, but actually I think for me one of the most profound metaphors mm. was in your description of the flesh floss feast yeah. in the underpass and actually using the UV chalk yeah. on the wall that you can only see in certain lights. Actually, some of what's going on here is finding that particular light to be able yeah. to show up those beautiful things yeah. and to show up the reality and the complexity and the glory in the midst of what sometimes at face value in normal light just looks a bit grey. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. I think for me there was something around what's our perception of the direction of travel, of transformation between the church and estate communities. So I think the broader church thinks the direction of travel, of transformation is from the church out into the community. And actually, I think those podcasts and my own experience as an estates practitioner indicates that there's such richness in estates communities. For instance, in the estate community that I'm vicar of at the moment, I see people who have a really strong sense of neighbourliness, who really know how to love their neighbours. When I go around my estate community and from the podcast, they're clearly people who deeply care on a very um, visceral, very human level for their neighbours. Whereas if you go around wealthier estates, wealthier areas, I don't see people on the corner chatting. I don't see that human interaction. And I think the direction of travel, of transformation is far more that we 
should go in to be transformed, to learn, to be enriched from the richness of our estate communities. And that's what came out of the podcast for me quite powerfully and kind of echoed with my own experience. There's also something very real about in the project whole about the challenge of the work, isn't there? You know, there's been, been some terrific, agile, Christ-centred, imaginative ministry. But it's also been some moments of toughness, you know. Not everyone has stayed the course in this project. One, one practitioner spoke very movingly about how the lack of confidence in his estate has undermined his own confidence. And there's something that's very important, I think, about the way in which Jesus is present and dwells in suffering. Where very often we want simplistic answers to that, don't we? It's all going to be all right again. It's going to be fine. But actually... He's present in suffering in a way that is long-term and much more profound than that. That ministry on these areas can be tough, but that doesn't mean to say that Christ is not still richly and beautifully there. And I think that highlights, and to go back to that story, it highlights that actually the wider systems can sometimes be the thing that crucifies people. And I think what we've heard in these podcasts is not just that actually the broken systems of society actually make life more difficult for people on estates than it should be. There is something profoundly wrong in our society that the kind of poverty that's the day-to-day reality for many of our neighbours on estates is part of it. But actually the church has some culpability in that as well. The church has asset-stripped and under-resourced estates communities and actually estates congregations and estates clergy have felt the sharp end of that. And we've heard those stories of, of not just vulnerability, but huge pressure from the systems. And actually, I think Lynn's point about actually in which direction is this flowing, I would love to see these little conversations as a bit of a pushback against some of those pressures so that the wider church actually begins to ask some critical questions about the way its systems function. I, mean, I think on that point, the question of resourcing... Obviously, we're talking about money and manpower, but you could also flip it around and say, actually, the larger, richer churches are under-resourced to the extent that they are not recognizing their mutual uh, dependence with these smaller churches, right? They are lacking that resource. They are poor in the sense that they cut themselves off from conversations the national church is poor to the extent that it doesn't include these people in their conversations. There's a great paper I heard yesterday by John Barclay, who's this guy that studies the New Testament. And um, he was giving a paper on 1 Corinthians 11 uh, and the notion of discerning the body correctly when one takes communion and how people were uh, not including the poor or at least not including some engorging themselves on the food that they brought uh, and how that sort of was a a mockery of what communion really is. He said that the vision of communion in that passage is one of mutual dependence, right? No one has too much. No one has too little. Everyone depends on one another because communion foments a network of interdependence. It creates that situation. And he was talking about how you know what real deprivation is when people lose their networks of support, right? When people live on the streets, it's because they literally have no network. But in a lot of these state contexts, that network is probably the strongest gospel feature mm. of of what they bring to the church, this idea of mutual interdependence. We were told stories of when it snowed, you know, the young going down and buying milk and bread and eggs for all the old people, that if there was anything going on wrong, that they would support one another. And that is gospel. That is That vision of what church is gets at the heart of what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 11, 
And that is a prophetic message that the rest of the church needs to hear. And without that message, we are poor. What you've just described, Justin, it strikes me, is the gift of communion. And we find all sorts of other ways of discussing how we are in and out of communion, partially or otherwise, with one another. But what you're saying has profound resonance, not least for how the church is with herself. Lynn, you mentioned a minute ago about the atomization of society and how, in a sense, the community, the communion that we find on the estates is a corrective to that. I wonder whether there are other ways in which this project might really act as a wake-up call for the church about really priorities, about how we harvest the gifts which we've seen on estates for the wider church. How do we learn to receive those gifts? One thing we need to be careful of is, I think, using we language (laughs) to the exclusion of some of these people. I mean, obviously, that's not what you meant. But even when we talk about the poor and the deprived and, uh, I mean... If we changed the way we talk and started saying, like, our brothers and sisters, they're not the poor. There's not an us and them thing. And it gives this impression that we here in our fancy church house are looking down at them saying, what can we, to the exclusion of them, they're obviously not participating in this, but how can we benefit from them? We are already benefiting from them, right? Spiritually, we are. And the more ways we can find to give them voice. Yeah, And not just in a sort of podcast where we can shine our light and go, oh, that was a good listen for 30 minutes, but actually in a way that makes change. And that change has to be very, very radical because at the moment the systems of the Church of England are are, are structurally cutting off leadership from urban estates. Now, there's some good moves being made by the Minister Division to try and address that, but the culture change that requires, getting away from this idea that to be a priest you must be highly educated, anywhere person in alt you know deployable to any context we've got to look totally differently at the way we discern form send leaders actually there's one just one example uh, where do you think the bung is where's the block in the system here because we've been talking about this as a church for quite a long time now We've been talking about it. We don't want to do it because of the challenge it will pose to existing structures. You know, if we're serious about empowering people, it means other people losing power, doesn't it? You know, this is, it's Philippians, isn't it? Jesus gives up everything in order to empower us. Yet is the church willing to follow that kind of model? The key term there is people are, are willing to give up. We're not taking anything away from people. We're saying, give this up for the sake of your neighbour, for the sake of your sister and brother. I think that language is important to yeah. establish. Mm. Yeah. I think in terms of releasing some of those gifts, I think it's do we know what leadership looks like within an estate's context? The manifestations of leadership within and leadership traits within an estate context can be markedly different. So you won't get people who listen to Radio 4 who can chat with you about the archers or whatever, but you will get people who've had a track record of community organising or who have been a voice for the residents' association or whatever. And I think it's looking for not are you like us, are you like me, but what are you doing within your context that God might use powerfully with the gifts that you have there and taking up the point about you know do we need priests who can be all things to all people actually we don't in an estates context we're far better having indigenous leaders that the local community recognize can empathize with and feel some kinship with if we can say it in that way then we have externally placed leaders who perhaps cannot 
relate or use the same frames of reference or have the same backgrounds or can connect? I also think that we have to declericalize, I think, the culture of the Church of England. And it would make sense why this happens, declining numbers and stuff. We sort of close ranks and look at one another and sort of define what it means to be Anglican with reference to the clergy culture. But I don't think for some of the reasons that you said that is not going to connect. You don't have to clergify the leadership. What you need to do is empower the leadership in estates, um, not to the exclusion of clerical involvement, but the idea that if you see someone gifted, how do we get a collar on them as soon as possible is this instinct that I think we have. But that might not be the most effective way to get into sort of the heart of those communities. But we do need to know people well. And I think with the uh, financial, you know, financial issues faced in many parts of the Church of England, there will clearly be less paid leaders, whether they're lay or ordained. And I understand that. But in order to receive the gifts of others, you've got to know what those gifts are. You've got to have spent some time walking with people to hear their voices, to notice and recognise, allow those gifts to be shared. And if nobody's there doing that stuff, it's almost as if we're taking away a layer because financially we can't afford that layer before we've heard and got to know and therefore set free, enabled, whatever language we want to use to allow that to happen. It's, you know, discerning gifts requires more than one person. It requires the community of faith, which includes the estate, but actually also includes some parts of the wider structure to whom we are accountable to. So absolutely, I agree with you. You know, it's not about just ordaining people quickly and just because that's what we think we should do but we do need to walk a while with people before we can actually understand and receive well those gifts you know it's a two-way it's a two-way process i think i was struck by one of our other contributors from altum who reflected that people need to become christians in their own way rather than us presenting our version as as the answer expecting people Mm -hmm. to fit a a predetermined box. And I think one of the phrases that we've used again and again in this project has been discovering the gospel together. Actually, it's not just about saying estates offer a different way of doing leadership that the church needs to take notice of, but that's true. It's also saying, actually, on our estates, we will find out what the gospel means today in a way that if we think we know the answer to that question already, we're probably wrong. Actually, the, the point of the listening as it goes deep, deep, deep down, ultimately, as Jamie, I think you said in your podcast, Christian faith is about going to the heart of reality. But actually, none of us know what the answer at the heart of reality is in all its fullness already. It's the question. And actually asking that question to our neighbours on our estates may shock us and surprise us and and delight us with an answer that we'd never imagined before. And that, of course, takes time. Uh, Discerning gifts takes time. And it strikes me we're very often a church in a bit of a rush, in a bit of a hurry. We're noisy. We're trying to move at great speed. And maybe one of the gifts which comes out of this project is the sense that actually taking time with people, alongside people, is the way in which we learn the gospel. 
We've talked a bit about the gifts that the wider church might receive from this series of reflections, this series of encounters. I want to think a little bit now with my friends around the table about the implications for wider society. What are the messages, some of the messages which might come out, for example, for politicians, local politicians, as well as for national government, which might help to influence the way that they think and speak about estates, but also clear matters of policy. What do we have to say about practice? I think the leadership point is a key one, because I think, you know, over the last few decades, I remember working in Hartlepool and people remembering back to the working class communities on the headland. And they had rich local leadership provided mostly by women who would, you know, lay out the bodies of the dead, who would deliver the children, who'd be there to give advice. It's interesting how we've stripped working class communities of their leadership and how many of the places that traditionally formed leaders, be that working men's clubs, groups, societies, women's institutions, have closed down or been privatised. And I think in the, the same way we in this project have emphasised the importance of drawing out local leadership, that's something actually that the nation needs to learn and an area where actually I think the church can, can set a bit of an example. Local entrepreneurialism, people who can speak up for estates communities, people who can initiate and experiment and draw people together. That's, I think, essential. I also think our modest practice of listening here is something that, that could be a profound gift to our politics at this time. Uh, it's stating the obvious to say that we're in a profoundly polarising, divided society. And actually, many of our neighbours on estates feel the brunt of that polarising. They're used as political footballs. And actually, the reality of life on our estates is that complexity is something that our neighbours deal with from day to day. Actually, our estates are not monochrome places. Our estates are not simply white working class as one of the political footballs that's knocked around at the moment. Our estates are often multicultural places where people grapple with and rejoice in and negotiate difference and diversity from day to day. And actually, if our politicians listened carefully to life on our estates, they would actually hear a lot of the subtlety that's missing in politics today that allows us to talk about class, it allows us to talk about race, but actually we have places where community is being built across those differences. So much of the coverage of estates is they're presented as bad news places and places of danger and difficulty and crime and knives and so on. We've gone to the estates as good news places and I think that major shift of emphasis sets a good example in so many areas of national life. And that came out in most of the podcasts when Stephen was talking about going to Withenshaw and people saying, oh dear. That was exactly the same happened to me when I went to Twiddle. I was, as a leaving gift from my previous church, was given a torch and a rape alarm. Not only a torch and a rape alarm. Um, <laughs> but that sense of you are going to a place of darkness and actually nothing could be further from the truth that it was a place of real community and a place of hope and a place of connectedness that we are missing in so many places. And I think the more time our politicians can spend on our estates, the better. There's an honesty on the estate. Yeah. You know, people don't come with a hidden agenda. If somebody is cross, they'll tell you they're cross. If there's something fantastic has happened, they'll tell you the fantastic thing. There's an honesty about life and about the relationships people have with their neighbours, which again is refreshing in today's world, I think. That point about politicians may be tempted to commodify the poor for their own reasons, whether to generate votes or 
to figure out what resonates. I mean, that is that is a prophetic point there. I mean, that could be something that politicians can listen to. That these people are not product. They're not there for your use, for your own gain. You are to be accountable to them, not the other way around. I think for me there are two things. Firstly, it's the language and the narrative. I, I think what those podcasts have shown, what this um, experience of listening in different contexts has shown, is that there's a, a real sense of respectability, a real sense of community. It may not look like the respectability in the community in your neighbourhood, but it's strong and it's resilient and it's to be admired and nurtured. And actually the narrative that we use, or perhaps more to the point in the church, we condone being used. You condone the language used in the Daily Mail and the Daily Express every time you buy a Daily Mail and a Daily Express. So what is the narrative of poverty and estates and deprivation? So what's the narrative there and how can we seek to influence a better narrative I think I, I would be keen on. And the other thing is short-termism. The amount of short-termism in the management and policy on estates is mind-blowing. So you've got short-term funding, people come, they do something brilliant, the community engage them, really take them to the heart. Two years later, they're gone. And that in Brinnington, where I work, that was very much when I came, it was kind of, well, how long are you going to be here? The General Synod motion, you know, in, in February 2019 about having a worshipping community on every estate, social housing estate of a significant size, that's absolutely crucial because we need to be the anchor institution there. We need to be there and invested for the long term because so much about these estates is short-termism and we could be a beacon of hope there. We could lead the way in terms of long-term investment on our estates nationally. And I think that's a challenge also for the church because in our phase of institutional anxiety as the Church of England, the temptation of short-termism to imagine transformation can happen in three years or five years with a bit of funding is something that actually our work on estates gives the lie to. Actually, people on estates talked about, in the podcast and in other bits of our work, talked about the importance of long-term presence, the sense that relationships of trust can only be built up over lengthy generational periods of time and it's you know you can pull that away in an instant but you can't rebuild it again quickly no if there's one thing the gospel is not it's hit and run a sense of just being with people committing to them for the long term and allowing oneself to be transformed as a result of that relationship is what we've seen across so many of these examples. My only kind of slight caveat is that there are some estates that are very settled communities. But just as we've talked about diversity in estates in many different ways, the Cockhill Estate in Rubri, there is some of that. There are some families that have lived there for years and years and years. But it is also the place where there is the overflow housing, where people come and go, people are there for six months. And actually that short-termism is then seen in the housing situation. There's always the yes, but, or the and. It's, uh, these situations sometimes are unstable for people certainly that's something we see there's an element of transience which i suppose makes it even more important that the church remains stable and present this has been an amazing project to work on and we hope there'll be all sorts of different legacies emerging from it there are the podcasts which we've produced there will be a book published by spck called finding the treasure 
And there will doubtless be individual legacies on each of the estates, parishes where we've been working. But I wonder also if there are other ways about how we continue to harvest the gifts, the fruits of this project. I think one of the things that I was really encouraged by in the Withenshaw story was the sense that once the the weaving had started and the listening to local stories had started, actually even when Stephen, the vicar, moved on, local people wanted to continue, wanted to keep going. And I think one of our hopes and dreams for this project is that it will encourage and inspire estate churches across the country to do something similar in their own ways, to do more intentional listening, both within their congregation and within their wider community, to do that listening and to make it an ongoing part of life. I'd echo that. I think there are some people in Rubri who would hear our podcast and would not necessarily recognise their own community because the Cochlear Estate is quite a distinct area within Rubri. They may not have been there, even though it's down the road. So it has shone a light, but it has also, I think, I hope, encouraged that level of listening amongst the more established church congregations. So I hope that that legacy will continue. I think one thing we've seen is actually the church's good news for estates. We've just seen some really interesting, ambitious, imaginative ministry engaging local people. And I think we can be sometimes a bit unconfident of the role that we play in being a people of worship and a people of prayer on our estates. And this just shows that when churches are really plumbed into their communities, when they're listening properly and actually speaking into situations and dealing with real lives, they're powerfully good news for estates. And I hope that's a real encouragement, actually, to um, estates church leaders and estates churches around the country, for whom life is often a real, real struggle. I hope they really hear from this, that they massively matter. Sometimes the theological establishment can feel very distant from the parish structure, and particularly from the parishes in urban areas. I think what we've modelled here, this fascinating process of estates practitioners walking alongside academic theologians for two years, listening together, is a brilliant way of breaking down that barrier between lived parochial experience and the academy. And I really hope that more and more theologians and more practitioners can model this kind of working together, just because so everybody feeds from it and gets so much life from it. One of the things from a Twiddle perspective that's been a great legacy is obviously I've moved on since we made the podcast and they are in the process of writing their parish profile and the Twiddle declaration is what it's structured around. And so they're thinking about who they are, who they become in the years ahead is hugely impacted on their new understanding of who they are and what they stand for. And it will be interesting to see if there were a process by which other parishes looking to a different kind of future could carry out a similar listening exercise i think a legacy outcome for me and a hope that might come from it is that i'm working with the archbishop of canterbury's housing commission at the moment and i used to be in housing management with a housing association and no decent housing association would put in policy into an an estate area without consulting tenants so if we want to take this listening into an infrastructural level how about the church takes its major policies down to a state level to consult that would force a few things firstly the policies would have to be more understandable and so you may be looking at executive summaries or whatever but but I worked as a consultant we did a review of 17 policy areas with housing association tenants in Salford and they were fully engaged in all of those areas it's not that people from estates cannot understand it's just nobody bothers putting it in a form that they can 
engage with and, and doesn't take the time to do it. So that would be a great legacy outcome if we could have some form of ongoing listening regarding policy formulation and uh, consultation for Church of England policies as it affects people on estates. And policy across the entire sweep of what the church is concerned with. So not just the things that we think might particularly touch on the life of people on estates, but let's get their wisdom on issues of human relationships and what it means to be a young person living in the 21st century. All of those things. I'd love to see what folks that live in these contexts can do with scripture a bit more. In America, where I'm from, you have this crazy tradition of African-American theology that's emerged over hundreds of years where they just, um, enslaved peoples would take the Bible <laughs> secretly and then read it for themselves and come up with all sorts of alternative readings that were bringing out aspects of scripture that were, that couldn't be seen by others. And I would love to put the Bible in the hands of working class people, of people that live on estates, and have them teach the church how to read the way that they might read. The diversity of the body of Christ is often, in practice, a sort of managed diversity. It's a diversity which is chopped up into manageable chunks. I guess one of my hopes about part of the legacy of this project is that we become more comfortable with unmanaged diversity, with simply encountering the body of Christ where it exists and learning to receive the gifts of that unmanaged diversity in a way which is open to the Holy Spirit. One of the phrases that jumped out at me and has stayed with me from the podcast was Natalie from Rubery, who said, we are each other's shining touch. If one of us is down, the others will pick us up. And if Natalie from Rubery can teach the church how to practice that shining touch, to be open and honest about our vulnerabilities, as so many of our neighbours on estates are from day to day, and to be able to pick each other up when we fall, and to, to allow ourselves to be picked up by our sister and brother Christians, then I think the gift from estates the way we discover the gospel together is something profoundly transformative. And it's, yeah, it's transformative for our estates. It's transformative for us, as we've said before. There's a quote by, a, actually, she wrote a book about pedagogy and architecture, Elizabeth Ellsworth, and she talks about the borders, the boundary, as the place where we are transformed, where we dance in difference. And I don't just say that because we did a project with dancing in it, but to be able to dance on the edges to learn a new dance together, to be transformed by that participation, engagement is, yeah, it feels like um, a necessary and rich thing. It's certainly something that teaches me and transforms me. Another critical legacy for the church must be enduring and hot anger at injustice. Because while we've found the good news on the estates and gone seeking and, and looked for Jesus there, we must never be complacent about what it is we're finding, that we've dealt with people living with radical social injustices, with inadequate housing, with underinvested schools, people dependent on food banks and the fifth largest economy in the world, people being screwed by unscrupulous multinationals who underpay them because they prefer to pass on money to shareholders rather than the staff who generated those profits in the first place. We should be angry about that, actually. So our listening must never be become a complacent or accepting listening you know in the end the project is transformation 
And when we're angry about that, let's not imagine that it's down to those of us who are professional and middle class to sort it all out. Actually, what we've also seen here is a huge amount of initiative and creative and agency amongst our neighbours. And actually, as Lynn was suggesting earlier, in relation to Church of England policies, why don't we expect our neighbours on estates to be the people that have the best answers to, to the questions of injustice and inequality? So finally, to round our time together off, I'm going to ask Lynn to lead us in a prayer which has been written for our estates. Faithful God, your compassion embraces all people. Renew your church in service of the urban estates of our nation, that anointed by your spirit we may bear witness to your power to heal and save, and the transforming love revealed in your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. 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 So thank you all for listening to this podcast and my thanks to the Reverend Lynn Cullens, Bishop Philip North, the Reverend Claire Turner, the Reverend Anne Richardson, Dr. Justin Stratis, and the Reverend Dr. Al Barrett. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you. This project has been a huge joint effort and it's important to thank those pairs of practitioners and theologians who've been involved in lots of the hard work behind it, but also to thank those people and communities we've met in Twiddle, Withenshaw, Cowgate, Rubri, Durrington and Elton. We'd also like to thank the Archbishop's Council for their generous funding of this project.